This is an ABC podcast. Good morning. Welcome to AM. I'm Sabra Lane coming to you from Nipaluna, Hobart. It seems a joy in Qatar with Australia through to the knockout round of the World Cup for just the second time after a surprise win against Denmark. It's a remarkable performance by the Socceroos who lost their first match against France before recording a win against Tunisia. Now this 1-0 victory against a world top 10 team has left Australian soccer fans ecstatic. National sport reporter David Marks in Doha. Sabra, it was absolutely amazing. I mean, the Australian fans sort of started pouring out of the uh, stadium. The first few were sort of in disbelief, but then more and more came out and just said, look, this is absolutely amazing and before too long it raucous scenes of dancing and singing and chanting. It was just uh, an extraordinary scenes, really. There's not a lot of Australian fans here. It's been very expensive to come over, but the ones that were here were making a huge noise and just scenes of delirium, really. I mean, this is an extraordinary performance by the Socceroos. It's the best ever performance by the Socceroos at a World Cup. To win two matches in the pool games is, is unprecedented. Now they go into the final 16, which hasn't happened since 2006. Great. Absolutely excited. We won. That's what we needed. So now we we're on to the that. next game. Did you expect this? Of course, we're the best. We're the best. We're going to win this thing. We're going to win all of it. How are you feeling? Oh, ecstatic. Um, we can't believe it. It's hard to put it into words. Better than getting married. <laughs> Take us through the match itself. It was a really interesting match, Sabra, because obviously Australia had to come out and play for the win, but Denmark were just wonderful in the first 30 minutes they absolutely controlled the game they created a lot of chances they were finding lots of holes in the Australian defence they had one excellent chance in the 11th minute one on one with Matt Ryan but the shot went straight to the Australian captain and so that was snuffed out but gradually after about the 30 minute mark Australia began to work its way into the match it was nil all at half time Uh, shortly after the second half began the news came through that Tunisia had scored a goal against France, which changed the equation completely for Australia. It meant a draw was no longer any good. They had to get a win. And then about two minutes later, Matthew Leckie got on the end of a brilliant ball uh, by Riley McGree. He beat one defender with his left foot. He curled the ball in just inside the right goalpost. And that was extraordinary, an amazing goal. Really will go down in Australian football folklore. It's on for Matthew Leckie. Matthew Leckie cuts back inside. One way there. And then Australia just held on. And it was all about team defence. Matthew Leckie was the player of the match. But it was really the structure of their team defence. Denmark could not find a way through. They kept trying the long balls. They became more and more anxious. But the Australian defence held firm. And when I say defence, I mean the entire team. So what does this mean for Australian football? It's going to be huge for the game in Australia. I mean, it's not had a great period of late. And... To put this in some kind of context too, this isn't a team of stars. It's not the team of 2006, which had the likes of Harry Kuehl and Mark Schwarzer and Tim Cale. This is a team of players who are playing in sort of lower divisions. Um, Mitch Duke, who scored the other night, is in the Japan second division. There are players in the A-League. And the Socceroos coach, Graham Arnold, was delighted. He spoke to media a short time after the game. A lot of belief, a lot of hard work. And, you know, these boys come in with a great mindset. That's why we won after a great win against Tunisia. No celebrations, no emotion, sleep, no social media. It will definitely unite 
uh, Australian football fans, it'll unite Australian sports fans full stop, and we'll get more people interested in the game. And then we look ahead to next year when the Women's World Cup will be on in Australia. It's going to be a really heady time for Australian football for the next little while. That's David Mark there in Doha. There's been a long and at times personal debate in the Senate over the federal government's contentious industrial relations changes. The laws haven't passed yet, but they'll get through thanks to the support of independent Senator David Pocock. As debate dragged on in the Senate, the Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, offered an olive branch to business representatives who've campaigned against the changes. Here's political reporter Noor Haydar. Senators debated the government's secure jobs and better pay bill late into the night. I guess we'll resume in the morning. The contentious legislation has the support of independent ACT Senator David Pocock. His decision to back the bill prompting this attack by Liberal Senator Linda Reynolds. Colleagues, let me tell you, Senator Pocock is not riding in a big white horse into Australia to help us all single-handedly. He is riding the trade union Trojan horse into workplaces right across this nation. And it is a disgrace. To secure Senator Pocock's deciding vote, the government made a number of concessions earlier this week. They include additional safeguards for small and medium-sized businesses. Independent Senator Jackie Lambie had wanted more time to consider the lengthy legislation. The way that you have rushed this through, it just blows me away. I thought you were going to be a different government to the last one. Labor argues the bill, which includes an expansion to multi-employer bargaining, will help drive up wages. Senator Lambie is not convinced. God help you, if this time next year people are in absolute crisis, they're not getting their pay rises, there is union strikes all over this country. Labor Senator Murray Watt fielding question after question from Shadow Workplace Relations Minister Michaelia Cash. When does the government expect wages to start increasing as a result of the legislation? Of course I'm not going to give a precise date. I can guarantee you that if we leave the workplace relations laws in the way they currently are, without amendment, I can guarantee you we will get exactly the same result as we've seen for the last 10 years. Just down the hall, the Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, was addressing a gala dinner hosted by the Australian Chamber of Commerce and Industry. I am aware that there are elements of our plan with which Aki is not in complete agreement. We will continue to seek your cooperation, your insights and your expertise as we confront emerging challenges. Andrew McKellar is Aki's chief executive. Obviously, this is an outcome that business is not comfortable with, but we have good engagement uh, with the government and will continue to do so. While he is disappointed, he accepts the changes are coming. We have to get out there now. We have to educate businesses about uh, these new arrangements, uh, obviously inform them about the provisions. The bill is expected to pass the Senate today. Nor Haydar reporting. And coming up on RM Breakfast, Patricia Carvelis interviews the Minister for the NDIS and Government Services, Bill Shorten. Veterans groups have taken aim at the Chief of Defence over his move to revoke medals for command failures during the Afghanistan war. The SAS and Commando Association say administrative action should only be taken once alleged war crimes have been proven in court. In an unprecedented step, they've joined forces with the RSL to demand the Albanese government pull rank on General Angus Campbell. His defence correspondent, Andrew Green. 
Two years have passed since the damning Brereton report into alleged war crimes was handed down. Accountability rests with those who allegedly broke the law and with the chain of command responsible for the systemic failures involved. In November 2020, Defence Chief Angus Campbell moved to implement one of the most contentious recommendations of the report from the Inspector General of the ADF's Afghanistan inquiry, which was to strip the meritorious unit citation from members of the Special Operations Task Group, a decision later overturned by then Defence Minister Peter Dutton. From the very outset, right back in late 2020 when the government first responded to this and when the Chief of the Defence Force first responded, there's been a presumption of guilt, in our opinion, rather than a presumption of innocence. Martin Hamilton-Smith is the National Chairman of the Australian SAS Association. He says his members are furious that General Campbell has recently written to some former officers demanding they justify why they should keep honours and medals for distinguished and conspicuous service in the Afghanistan war. The concerns are shared by the RSL and the Commandos Association, whose vice president is Steve Pilmore. There has been no guilt established yet, so it seems we're putting the cart before the horse and looking for people to pay for something that has not necessarily been proven yet. The veterans groups are demanding the Albanese government step in and again overrule the defence chief. There needs to be an explanation to veterans about what's going on. We sent our soldiers to fight a very dangerous war against a ruthless and vicious enemy. Some of them were killed in our name. Many were wounded. Hundreds more are living with their experiences. And what thanks do we get? We get this process. In a statement, Defence says General Campbell is considering the command accountability of current and former serving ADF members who held command positions at a range of ranks during the periods where alleged unlawful conduct occurred. A Defence spokesperson says the CDF is committed to an evidence-based implementation of the IGADF Afghanistan inquiry recommendations and supporting the work of the Office of the Special Investigator and the Australian Federal Police. Andrew Green reporting there. You're listening to AM and it's 20 past seven. It's expected the federal government will reveal next week how it plans to cap gas and coal prices. While we wait for that, a new report suggests skyrocketing, skyrocketing prices for the resources and making the energy divide between the rich and poor even worse as relative costs rise fastest for those least able to afford them. Here's energy reporter Daniel Mercer. In Nimiji, a small town seven and a half hours west of Sydney, electricity is an essential in what can be a brutal climate. Jodie Essery would know. She's lived there for the past couple of years. If you don't have electricity, you freeze in the winter time and you cook in the summer. I mean, we get up to 50 degree days some days out here. This winter has been a particularly difficult one for the 32-year-old. As Australia's energy markets went berserk, her power bills went through the roof. Two years ago, her winter power bill was $400. This year, it was almost $1,000. The rise of the price of electricity, I just was so afraid to turn on my heater. So we have a fireplace, but that's in like a little central area and it doesn't get to the bedrooms or kitchen or anything. So we literally spent the whole winter freezing because we're petrified of electricity prices. The effects of rising prices are being felt especially hard by those on lower incomes. 
A report from Energy Consumers Australia shows energy costs as a share of disposable income are rising much faster for poorer households than wealthy ones. What we're seeing is that for households above median income, the world hasn't changed a great deal for them. They're paying around 2% of their income in electricity and everybody else paying anywhere between 4% and at the bottom it's 12%. Lynn Gallagher is the Chief Executive of Energy Consumers Australia. She says Australia's energy divide is getting wider and governments and industry need to ensure there are proper safeguards in place for consumers falling behind. These include wholesale price caps on coal and gas, more generous and better targeted subsidies and renewed efforts to increase energy efficiency in homes. And I think we've got to actually communicate with consumers, as I said, through a national campaign so that they feel that governments have got their back. Another worry is falling competition as soaring costs push out smaller retailers. We've set the wayback machine. We've gone back sort of 10 years in what the market looked like. So that 10 years of development is, is sort of evaporated because of this, you know, the high price environment and the impact it's put on the industry. Gavin Dufty is St Vincent de Paul's policy and research manager and he says poorer households are bearing the brunt of the squeeze. It leaves them in a really bad position. There's less opportunities for people to get something better. The low-income households tend to be in situations where they can't afford the new kit, um, like the solar and other uh, new appliances. Nimiji resident Jody Essery says help is desperately needed. Now I have to waste all my money on electricity, so therefore I'm, I feel like I'm getting poorer every time these rates go up. Nimiji resident Jody Essery ending that report from Daniel Mercer. Big floods are often devastating for people, but they're a crucial life-giving force for nature. However, when there are back-to-back extreme events, scientists say the picture becomes complicated. While some species are thriving because of the floods, others are struggling with starvation and displacement. Here's National Regional Reporter Rachel Carbonell. One of the silver linings of this year's destructive floods has been the boost to waterbird populations. River ecologist Professor Richard Kingsford. It's in times like this that we get these phenomenal colonies of waterbirds, which are the sort of flagship for what's happening. It's that vast expanse, that sort of smorgasbord of food that's out there, which really caters for every different species. But this year's big floods have also taken a toll on some species. Animal ecologist Associate Professor Cathy Townsend says dugongs have been washing up sick and dead along Queensland's Fraser Coast because silt from rivers has killed most of the seagrass they rely on for food. We've seen a massive increase in the number of strandings. Already we've seen 10 times the numbers than we were seeing in, say, 2019. And these animals um, are often washing up quite unwell, so basically starvation is an issue. And scientists are investigating whether the number of green sea turtles washing up unwell with soft shell disease is also linked to flooding. Professor Dana Bergstrom is an integrative ecologist at the Australian Antarctic Division. She says big back-to-back floods and flooding off the back of drought, fire and heat waves can be very harmful. Climate scientists call them compound events. 
If you keep having rapid or multiple events, you're basically chipping away at the backbones of your ecosystem. So these are the things that can lead to tipping points in that things get weaker and weaker and weaker and weaker and then all of a sudden they can tip over. All kinds of land-dwelling wildlife, from kangaroos, wombats and bandicoots to lizards and snakes, seek higher ground in floods. There's certainly been large numbers of animals that have come into care with wildlife carers. Wildlife ecologist Ewan Ritchie says while some individual animals may die, that doesn't necessarily threaten their overall populations. And it's possible they may benefit from the boom in growth after the floods. Some animals will be winners and some will absolutely be losers. As sad as it is, losing some kangaroos is probably not going to have a big effect on their population overall. But absolutely, we should be looking at uh, what may or may not have happened to plants and animals and, and other species as a result of these floods. He says climate change is affecting the way species and ecosystems cope with big floods and more research is needed to understand those impacts. Rachel Carbonell. Liberation of the city of Kherson in Ukraine south last month was a humiliating defeat for the Russian army, but Moscow's not giving in, launching heavy shelling, killing dozens of civilians and forcing thousands of people to escape. Sean Rubenstein-Donlop met with families fleeing north to the city of Kriveri. It's been nearly a year since students filled the halls of high school number 27 in the city of Kriviri. Instead of desks in the classrooms, there are now fold-out beds where tired families crowd in with the few belongings they had time to bring. Farm workers Larissa and Alexander Simutenko arrived here by bus yesterday after a terrifying escape from their village of Kozatskye, south of here in the Kherson region. There was heavy shelling. We couldn't pack our things. They started to shell, bomb and shoot. We ran to the school where the bus was waiting and we nearly didn't make it because of the shelling. The liberation of the Kherson region was one of the most stunning defeats of the war, but Russia has relentlessly kept up its attacks, killing dozens of civilians. In Larissa's village, they left landmines which reportedly killed local residents. Larissa cries as she tells us what she's finally left behind. We left everything. We left our house, our animals, our birds. We untied our animals. So many people died there. Their bodies were in basements. People dug graves in their gardens because it wasn't safe to take them to the cemetery. We didn't want to leave, but then very heavy shelling started, very heavy. Now there are only old people left there who don't have relatives to help them evacuate. Further east in the Donetsk region, brutal battles are raging as Russia fights to take the cities of Bakhmut and Avdivka. On each side, about 100,000 soldiers are believed to be dead or wounded, and many Ukrainian civilians are missing. A few beds away from Larissa, we meet Svetlana Shulga, who fled another village in the Kherson region seven months ago. She holds up a worn photo of her 22-year-old son, Maxim. She hasn't seen him since the first week of the war. On the 3rd of April, the Russians took my son. They took a young woman, a man and my son. The woman was let go, but the man, my son's friend, was found dead in a field a few weeks ago. And my son is still missing. The police told me that the Russians were kidnapping young men to force them to join the army in Crimea or to send them to prison. I still don't know whether it's true or not, and I don't know where he is. 
Ukraine might have the upper hand in this war, but Russia's campaign of brutality shows no sign of letting up. This is Sean Rubenstein-Dunlop reporting for AM in Krivi Ree. That's AM4 today. Thanks for your company. I'm Sabra Lane. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.